Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, we'll be reading through verse 26, uh, looking at the triumphal entry. Uh, we do not have any palm fronds. We don't want anybody taking their eye out today, you know, waving palm fronds around. But when we go to John chapter 12, here's what we see. We see Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Uh, the Gospel of John slows way down there, and we find that really the rest of the Gospel of John is dealing with the final week of Jesus' life. And let me read for you uh, the Word of God uh, from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus had glorified, was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we come to your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that your word would um, handle us, not we handle your word. But Father, as we come, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would listen and Holy Spirit work in us so that we might live for Jesus, that we might die to self and live for Jesus. For Father, in losing our life, we find great, abundant life in Christ. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know Jesus as our King. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the idea is this, uh, my title of the sermon, Is It Time? Is it time? You see, when Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem, it's the time for Him to be revealed. We see that it is his time for His kingdom to be inaugurated. It is time to, for Jesus to show by what type of of death he will have and what type of king he will be. But is it time? You know, like we think about that phrase, is it time? Or we think about the phrase, it is time. It is time. I think about that in in light of when we think about, well, this new little baby that we had and we just baptized. When you think about that from, from a dad's perspective, when the wife says, it's time. It's time. You drop everything and you think about, okay, there, we've been nine months of preparation for this, and it's time now to get to you know, the hospital. And you think about when you first um, find out that you're pregnant, there's all of these things that are anticipatory. You're anticipating all of these things in the midst of your life. Um, you're anticipating, well, are we going to find out if it's a boy or a girl, right? And you're anticipating that. And some people decide, well, we always decided, all four of our kids, we found out whether or not they were going to be a boy or a girl. And some people are like, well, don't you want to be surprised? And I'm like, we were surprised. You know, we were just surprised at 20 weeks rather than 40 weeks. But you're going to be surprised whenever it happens, right? 
You're going to be surprised. And then you've got to figure out, you know, if you find out, you've got to find out a really clever way to do a gender reveal, right? Like, I mean, people have actually, like, shot air darts at balloons, even in this congregation, to determine whether or not it was a little boy or a little girl, right? And so this balloon pops, or you've got to have a cake that's blue or, or pink. And then you have to start thinking about, well, where's the baby going to be? And we have to, like, all of these things come, and you have baby showers. And, and if you're a dad or a mom, you learn that you, you don't even know how to breathe. You have to go to classes in order to learn how to breathe again. And so you, you learn how to breathe, you learn how to put cribs together, and you learn all of these things. You're painting and figuring all these things out. And then you figure out the route that you're going to take uh, to the hospital. You get your baby bag uh, ready, and you just wait, and you wait. And then the magical words come out, it's time. It's time. And then there's a flurry of activity because there's this anticipation of this new life and this new baby that has come. Now, in a similar way, all of the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. Not just nine months, but hundreds of years. Hundreds of years since the fall of man in Genesis 3, they've been waiting for the great prophet, priest, and king to come back. And what we find is that Jesus now is saying, it's time for the king to be revealed. And so the triumphal entry comes in. It denotes the king has come. And what we find is that the people cry out from Psalm 118, Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, as Jesus is coming in, and they're waving the palm branches. And the palm branches, it's interesting here, the palm branches have become a, a sense of national prominence. Because a hundred years previous to that, prior to that, what we find is that there was Judas Maccabeus, uh, who was a Jewish um, leader, and he actually drove the Greeks who had desecrated the temple. And Judas Maccabeus came in, and the palm branches had become a symbol of Judas Maccabeus, and it was a sign of national prominence. So when we think about palm branches being you know, waved in the midst of the triumphal entry, what we're really thinking about is sort of uh, flags. Like If you were thinking about an American flag being waved in, it's a sign of nationalism, is what we see. Is Israelite Jewish nationalism as they're waving the flags back and forth. And what we find is that actually the palm branch was actually on currency in that time. And so that the people were saying, this is Jesus, and Jesus is coming in, and he's going to take off the burden and the yoke of the Romans. And we're going to actually have a king who leads us in victory. That's what they thought. But Jesus, when he comes in, here's what he does that's um, spectacular, as he fulfills this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus comes in, and he's sitting on a donkey's colt. And in Zechariah um, chapter 9, what we see is that Jesus is fulfilling that. Um, we, we read it today, or Blake read it today, Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there, chapter 9, verse 9. It says this. This is a, a prophetic messianic prophecy that Jesus fulfills. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, what's striking about that is that a donkey is not what a king rides in on. And what um, the Gospel of John, John is writing about, he uses all of these contrasts, light and darkness, 
But he uses this contrast. He uses it for this reason. He says, Jesus comes on a donkey in and we're shouting Hosanna. But there was also another leader who was coming in on the other side of Jerusalem and he was mounted on a white horse. He was mounted on a white horse and he had an army at his back. And his name was Pontius Pilate. And there's a contrast that we see going on in Jerusalem at this time is that Jesus is coming in humble and lowly, bringing salvation in a way that they did not expect. And on the other side of the city, Pontius Pilate was coming in, riding on a white horse with all of the army at his back. And yet, what John is saying is, this is the true king. You see, Jesus is coming humble and lowly. When we think about Matthew chapter 11, we think about Jesus' words when he says to me, come to me all who are labor, labor all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's who Jesus is. He's not some conquering king as the world expects him, but rather he comes and he does ascend a throne. And that throne was the cross. The cross upon which Jesus was mounted was his throne. And on that throne, he disarmed the rulers and the principalities of this world. He made payment for our sins and he conquered sin and death. But he's gentle and lowly of heart. You see, Jesus is not trigger happy, he's not harsh, he's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. And the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but it is open arms to welcome all who will trust and believe. When we think about this, we think about um, many of you watched the coronation of King Charles you know, a couple of weeks ago at this point, right? You see, the coronation for Jesus was at the cross. Actually, he was anointed the day before this happened by Mary at the, at the home of um, Simon the leper when they were having a gratitude feast in the earlier part of John chapter 12. The anointing of Jesus was his preparation, his inauguration of his kingdom, and where he set up his kingdom on the cross. He ascended his throne for you and for me. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus opens his arms wide and says, come to me and I will give you rest. But see, it's not just time in the midst of um, Jesus' kingdom being inaugurated. We also see that the hour for Jesus to bear much fruit is at hand. As a matter of fact, what we find is that, you know, first of all, the disciples did not understand what was going on. You know how I know that? Look at verse 16 in John chapter 12. His disciples did not understand these things. That's how I know that. I know that that is what's going on right here. They didn't know it. They had no idea. They looked backwards to this. So the crowd was coming because they had heard that Lazarus was, had been raised from the dead. And so they're trying to figure all of these things out. And then what we find in verse 20 is that Jesus comes and he says, Now it is time for me to reveal myself. Um, now, he says this... Um, um, when we look at verse 23. 
And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what he's saying is, the hour is now at hand. Now the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is actually the most noted phrase that Jesus uses of himself. Now other people will call Jesus you know, the great prophet, he's a great priest, you know, he says, I am, all of these things. But the term he uses most, the phrase he uses most is son of man. And it's taken from Daniel chapter 7, saying, I am the son of man who will come and redeem Israel. He's the son of man. He uses it, I think, 96 times throughout the Gospels, referring to himself. And he says, now is the son of man, the hour has come for him to be glorified. Now it's interesting, because there are other places in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, at the great wedding feast of Cana, where he says, my hour has not yet arrived. He says in, in John chapter 7, verse 30, he says it in, in John chapter 8, verse 20, he says, now my hour has not yet arrived. As a matter of fact, when you look at um, John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, his mom, in the midst of the wedding, says, hey, they've run out of wine, and you need to do something. And he looks at her and goes, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. By the way, children do not ever, or husbands don't ever use or quote that verse to your wife. And you're like, hey, honey, you know, like it's time for you to cut the grass. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, like we're not going to use that. You know, like please don't use that out of context. I mean, that's why context is so helpful, right? Like, woman, what does that have to do with me? Like, honey, I'm just quoting scripture. Jesus said it. You know, I mean, this is where we are. But he's saying this, my hour has not yet come to be glorified. He says it again in chapter 7. He says it again in chapter 8. But now he's saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, he says this in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, amen, amen. And he uses this phrase, truly, truly, 25 times in the Gospel of John. And every time he says, truly, truly, what he's saying is, this is important. He's foot stomping that. He's saying, truly, truly, now I'm going to reveal myself to you in a way that will reveal my kingship, my messianic uh, coming. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, the, the time for Jesus to reveal himself also noted Jesus was saying that my death will bear much fruit. It is time for me to bear much fruit in the midst of my death. Just from a, um, a farming illustration, um, if you take one corn seed, one corn seed in one generation can yield 2,800 seeds. 2,800 seeds. So if you take 2,800 seeds and then you multiply that one out, you actually get somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 million seeds from one corn seed in two generations. One corn seed can yield you know, 7 million seeds in two generations. In one generation, it's 2,800. I mean, I bet m many of you are hoping or would love to see your, your retirement portfolio yield what a corn seed could yield, right? You wouldn't have to be, have it very long. Now, in the midst of this, Jesus is saying that my death is going to bear much fruit. You see, what he's saying is that when I die, you know, when I die, um, actually, and I'm going to quote Colossians chapter 2, where it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, when Jesus died, when Jesus died, we think about the yield. The yield that occurred at the death of Jesus meant that all of my sins, all the sins of everyone who would ever believe in Jesus were were paid for in full. That the righteous wrath of God, which we deserve because of our sins, was poured out upon Jesus. And in the midst of doing that, he paid the penalty. He broke the power of sin and he made a way for a sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. That's the yield. One seed, all of that yield. And he did it for God's glory and because he loves us. See, that's the the beauty of the death of Jesus. When Jesus ascended his throne, he made a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father, but not just reconciled, adopted into his family. It's the beauty of the gospel in front of us. You know, when we we think about um, that particular um, thought, it is that sacrifice is necessary to do great things. As a matter of fact, we, we, we read about this when, when we read about it in John chapter 12, when it says, you know, verse you know, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's interesting. Because I think not only is it time for Jesus' kingdom to be inaugurated, not only is it time for the Son of Man to be glorified on the cross and to yield a great salvation for all those who would believe in Him, but it's also time for us to evaluate our lives and go, am I serving, am I following Jesus, or am I following something else? Jesus actually says in verse 25, He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. Now let me say this as we think about the time to evaluate what we love. You know, Jesus says that we are not to love our lives, but to hate our life in this world. We need to understand this rightly, in this way. Jesus is not saying that we should hate life itself, nor that we should not love the good things that God has placed in this world. Jesus' meaning is made clear when we notice two different Greek words he uses for the term life. In the first clause, when Jesus tells us not to love our life, he uses the word psyche. This gives us our word psychology. Jesus means that we are to reject the worldly way of thinking and feeling. We are to reject the life of ego. But then when Jesus speaks of gaining eternal life, so he uses this this word psyche, whoever loves his life, psyche, loses it, and whoever hates his life, the Greek word psyche, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. And that eternal life there is this word, zoe. We are to reject the life of ego, but when Jesus speaks of gaining eternal life, he uses the word zoe. When joined to the word eternal, this refers to the divine life in us. So we are to turn from the former former worldly ego to the latter, the divine life that enters us through the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends. So we're to reject that which will Um, be worldly, and to accept and turn to that which will be eternal. 
Tim Keller um, says this about Jesus, and I, and I love what he says. He goes, when you, um, when you find him, when you find Jesus, he will satisfy. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. Isn't that good? When you find him, he will satisfy your deepest longings. But when you fail him, he will forgive you. But the world, but in the world, in the world, when you achieve something in the world, it will not satisfy you. But when you fail the world, it will cancel you. And yet what we find is that we are on almost this um, uh, treadmill of pursuing the world. And the, and the more we achieve in the world, it doesn't satisfy. You know, people who, you know, we just went to a graduation this, this week and it was wonderful but there's a sense in which you, know, you graduate from high school and you're like, yes, but now I've got to graduate over here. Now I've got to get a master's degree. And then I've got to get this. And then I've got to get this. And then I've got to get this. And then I get this. And there's just this ongoing treadmill saying, I have to achieve. I have to achieve. I have to achieve. And it will not satisfy. But then the moment that you, the moment that you actually fail the world, it will cancel you. But not so with Jesus. He is gentle and lowly in heart. And he welcomes all those who trust and believe. And he says, come to me and I will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And then when you fail me, I'll forgive you. That is so good. Now, when we think about this, the question becomes and arises within us, do I worship and shout Hosanna Sunday and then betray Jesus with my actions all week long? (laughs) Do I do that? Now, the good news is you're forgiven. I already said that, right? You're forgiven, but we are called to actually pursue Christ. Let me, um, you know, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, as a soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follow its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. Like, if you love Jesus then you will pursue and follow him. Now, what did Jesus do? He died for others. There's this call in the life of a believer to die to self and to the world and to live. Now, I'm not talking about, I don't think, please hear me. I'm not talking about a physical death here. I'm talking about when you're dying to self to serve and sacrifice for others right now. This is what I mean by this. And so, you know, I remember, you know, like, Early on, when we had small children, and the children would cry, and I'm just hoping that Katie gets up and deals with the children. That's what I'm hoping, right? That is not dying to self. You know, that is living for self, right? And then she's like, honey, didn't you hear the children? I'm like, mm. you know, I mean, you're just, trying, you're just making stuff up there, right? I mean, you hear it. You know, like, so we are dying to self so that we can self-sacrifice so that essentially that we can you know, be this kernel of corn that when we die to self, we'll yield much fruit. Sacrifice is at the heart of, of everything that is accomplished that is great. Now, John Piper um, wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life, and here's what he has to say about a couple things. In the midst of this Don't Waste Your Life book, he says this. He says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. 
The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. He goes on to say this, and he was speaking to a crowd of of, of college students. He says, but I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. He, he, goes, he tells this story. Uh, and this happened, you know, again, 20 years ago. He says, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby um, Ellison and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon, The brakes give way. Over the cliff they go and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ? Two decades after almost all of their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico? No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. He goes, I'll tell you what a tragedy, and this is, you've probably heard this before. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Uh, and he's reading this from Reader's Digest. If you're young, you don't know what Reader's Digest is, what people used to read in the bathroom before they had their phones. You know, <laughs> Reader's Digest. He says, here's what Reader's Digest is. He is, is Bob and Penny. You know, Bob and Penny took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I'm here to tell you, don't buy it. With all of my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. Collecting shells, having a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family. And on the day that you stand before the Lord, what will you have to show Him? Your shell collection? Look, Lord, here are my shells. Is that what you're going to say? You see, the, the, the key to life is pursuing Christ and dying to self to live for Him. You know, think about it. Like, what are we pursuing? What are we engaging in? I mean, are, are, are we out for the next car? Are we out for the next house? I mean, think about even your clothes. I mean, how many of you looked at a picture like 30 years ago? I'm like, man, I can't believe my hair looked like that. I can't believe I had hair. You know, I can't believe that, you know, I actually wore those clothes out. You know, I mean, some of you might be wearing the same clothes from 30 years ago. If you're a man, you can get away with a collared shirt. You're fine. You know, but I mean, when you look at back and you go, man, what was I doing? And yet, We spend all of our time pursuing those things of the world. And when we pursue those things, they will actually rob us of joy and not give us life. Are we caught on the treadmill 
of what the world says. Now, one of the things that I love about this particular passage is you'll notice in John chapter 12 um, this, um, is that when you look at John chapter 12, there's this person here there, his name is Andrew. And Andrew doesn't show up a whole lot, but he does show up in, in several places in the Gospel of John. In, in John chapter 1, Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, when he found out Jesus was the Christ, and he said, you, Simon Peter, you've got to see Jesus. You're going to come, right? And then we also see that in John chapter 6, when they're wondering, how are they going to feed everybody in the feeding of the 5,000? You know, Andrew says, hey, here's the little boy. And so he brings him to Jesus. And in this particular passage, Andrew, after, um, I believe it's, um, we see that the Greeks are you know, coming. Now, some of the Greeks, so Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So what happens is, Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. Andrew is saying, come to Jesus. Hey, hey, brother, come see Jesus. Hey, hey, Jesus, I got this little boy. I don't know what you can do with this, but here it is. And we also see Andrew saying, hey, Greeks, let's go see Jesus. I mean, that's a model for us saying, like, how do we bring others to Jesus? How do we invite them to come to church? How do we invite them in? Like, who are we thinking about that we can die to self and live for Jesus and invite others into that life and to the benefit of the yield of his death? Bringing others. I love this. Matter of fact, uh, J.C. Rowell said this also, that we should all yearn to be like the donkey in this particular passage because it's just lifting Jesus up. May we all be like the donkey, lifting Jesus up, magnifying the name of Jesus, dying to self and vain glory so that Jesus might become preeminent. Again, his most natural posture is not a pointed finger, but it's open arms. Let me conclude with this story. Um, in terms of dying to self, um, there's a, a man that many of you have heard of. His name is uh, George Mueller. George Mueller uh, lived from basically 1805 to 1898. And he was a Christian evangelist in uh, Bristol, England. And he was one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren movement back when it was actually faithful to scriptures. Um, and he, he cared for, in his lifetime, over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime and provided educational opportunities for the orphans to the point that he was even accused, get this, he was even accused in the 1800s in England by some raising the poor above their natural station in British life. Like, don't you know, you're, a, you're raising that boy above his station to teach him how to read and write. He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 orphans and young people in England. George Mueller, that's what his name was. And when asked, um, George Mueller, he exercised a wide influence for God. And when someone asked him, what has been the secret of your life, George Mueller? What's the secret? He said, Mueller hung his head and said, there was a day when I died. Then he bent lower and said, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even of brethren or friends. The key to my life was dying to self and living for Jesus. Would you pray with me? 
Father, I pray, Lord, that as we evaluate what we love, that we would say it is time to follow Jesus. It is time to to die to self and to live for Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would love Him more than anything else and we would run to Him with all that we have. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not give ourselves over to the trinkets of this world or to buy into the American dream, but, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would pour ourselves out for His glory and for our good. Father, would You help us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.